Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to see you here today and spend our Sunday together with the last in our series on people in the Bible. Have you enjoyed this series? It's been, been, been good to get to know some of these folks, haven't you? Today we're looking at Ruth in the book of Ruth. Ha <laughs> ha. Yeah. And um, it's close to the front there. It's right after Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth. It's on page 222 on that Bible in front of you, if you'd like to pick one of those up. And we have looked over the past 13 weeks at several folks in the Bible and just found out that, you know, the more things change, the more they remain the same. We have the same need today that they had those thousands of years ago, and that is a relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ. And um, <clears throat> if, if we take anything away from this, I want it to be that God used normal people, just regular people just like us, to get amazing things done. And Ruth is a perfect example of that. Now, if you look there in, in chapter 1, verse 1, this book starts. I mean, this verse is such a great, great, powerful packed verse. Look at what it says there. Chapter 1, verse 1, it says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. I never, I never worst munched into bestest of English, but that's a great sentence right there. That's a, that's a great opening verse. Man, if you're, gonna have a, if you're going to have an opening verse, opening sentence, that's a great one. Because look at everything. Look at everything it does. It gives you time frame. It says when the judges ruled. It gives you circumstances. There was a famine. It gives you an introduction. There was a man. It gives you a location of, the, of Bethlehem and Judah. It gives you an enemy, went to sojourn in Moab, and it gives you family, he, his wife, and his two sons. That verse is just loaded in just a very few words. And it says, in the days when the judges ruled. So this gives us a time frame of when this happened. It happened after Moses, <clears throat> after Joshua, after they've taken the promised land, but it happens before Saul was king, before David was king, before the United Kingdom. So it happens in that time frame in there. It lets us know when this was. And it says that he went down to... Moab. Moab has a checkered history, a checkered experience with Israel throughout their history. They had a weird beginning, to say the least. You have Lot. Abraham had a nephew named Lot, and Lot lived down there in Sodom and Gomorrah, and it came time to rent a U-Haul, right, and move quickly. And so they get out of town, and it ends up out of town all that's left is Lot and his two daughters. He doesn't have a son to carry on his name, and so his daughters feel bad for him about that. Daddy doesn't have any sons to carry on his name. What should we do? What should we do? So they came up with the completely normal, here's an idea. Let's get Daddy drunk, and we'll get pregnant by him. Okay, that's sick and twisted. I don't care who you are. That's just weird stuff right there, okay? One of them had a son who became the father of the Ammonites. The other one had a son who became... The father of the Moabites, his name was Moab. So we see that these people have taken a dive into the shallow end of the gene pool from the very start, okay? The history with Israel continues, goes badly. They, they settle over here on the east side of the Dead Sea, that's them over there. And when Israel came out of the land of Egypt, wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and they came over to the east side of the, the Dead Sea, and they're going to cross the Jordan River up there on the north side of the Dead Sea, and Moab didn't want him to do that. So Moab hires this guy named Balaam. And you remember, he's the one who had a donkey that talked. And we say donkey because we're not allowed to say burrow in church. He's, <laughs> and so they hire Balaam to come in and curse 
Israel, Moab does this, curse Israel so they can be defeated. Well, it doesn't work. God turns the curse into a blessing, and they end up taking the promise. They cross the Jordan River, and they take the promised land, so everything should be great, but it's not. For another 18 years, at one point in here, Moab oppresses Israel until God raises up a judge in Israel, one of the judges, a guy named Ehud. Now, look, when you're picking Bible names to name your kids, let's give that one a shot, huh? Ehud. He could. <laughs> Never mind. Anyway, so God raises up Ehud, who goes to Moab and kills the king of Moab, a dude named Eglon. Okay? So Ehud killed Eglon. And the way he did it was he shoved a knife into Eglon and wiggled it around a little bit. And Eglon was such a large man. He was just fat. You know, he had not been watching my 600-pound life, had never met Dr. Now, didn't know these things. And so Ehud shook, stuck that knife in there, and the fat just swallowed the knife up. So they've had a, they've had a rough go of it. And this is, this is where, look in verse 2, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They went to the land of Moab. And now, you know, this is an interesting book for me because the title of the book is Ruth. So obviously the book is about Naomi. <laughs> it makes no sense. You know, it's it kind of weird for me, but it's about Ruth. It's definitely about Ruth. But look at this. Naomi is named in this book 22 times. Ruth is named in her own book 12 times. I wonder if she's going, well, why don't I get more airtime here? I mean, it's, it's my movie, you know. I, I should get top billing here. But what we're going to do this morning is look at some of why she didn't get top billing in three sections. First off, we're going to look at her background. Secondly, we're going to look at her transformation. And then thirdly, we're going to look at her contribution. First off, her background. The family, Elimelech has taken his family and moved to Moab. Now, Moab was just as weird then as it is now. Had a bunch of Buddhist prayer flags, you know, and New Age music was playing in all the stores. And every hipster doofus in the county had moved to Moab, and they had lots of tofu. <laughs> I'm sorry, the best part of any joke is when Jason Cotting laughs. But anyway, <laughs> it is a place they have hated for years, and they will continue to hate. Years later, when David becomes king, he's going to write in Psalm chapter 60, verse 8, Moab is my wash pot. It's my wash basin. It's, Moab's what I wash my feet in. That's what they think of these people. Slaves are the ones who wash their feet. And so when Elimelech takes his family, they're starving. There's food in Moab. But when he leaves Israel and goes to the wash pot, he goes to the enemy to, to live there, it's kind of like a Clemson fan rooting for Alabama. It's like Hillary and the Donald going out for a girl's night out. It's just, it's just not going to happen. But Elimelech does it. He takes his family down to Moab. And in chapter 1, verse 3, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. So Elimelech's death is talked, told to us in terms of Naomi's experience, which is reasonable. They're married. She has two sons left. They get married. One marries a girl named Orpah, which really is the origin of Oprah's name. They got the spelling wrong. One of them married Orpah. 
And the other son married Ruth. They live in Moab for about 10 years, and then the two sons die. So who do you think is going to be spoken of in terms of when the sons die? Look there in verse 5. But Malon and Chilion died so that the woman, Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. The daughters-in-law are not even mentioned in relation to the fact that it's their husbands that have died. They didn't want funeral potatoes at the, the meal after the funeral. Naomi wanted it, so they have it. You think about these daughters-in-law. They are foreigners. They are outsiders. They are not in the covenant. They are pagans. They are like we were before we met Jesus when it says in Ephesians 2.12 that you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's these people. And, and even, after, even after Naomi and Ruth move back up to Israel, Ruth cannot shake that she's a Moabite. She's from Moab all the way through. In Ruth 1, they still refer to her as Ruth the Moabite. She's in Israel, 2-2, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi. In 2-6, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi. Ruth 2-21, Ruth the Moabite said, 4-5, Ruth the Moabite, 4-10, Ruth the Moabite. Six of the 12 times that she's named in her own book, she's named with a racial designation that could be called a slur. They were not nearly as politically correct as we are, I guess. I wonder how difficult that would have been for her. Constant reminder, constant reminder. You're the enemy, you're the enemy, you're not one of us, you're an outsider, you're outside the covenant. Until, look over in chapter 2. There's a guy, she meets a guy named Boaz. And Boaz is kind to her provides for her needs. And this was so unusual for her that she looks at him in chapter 2, verse 10, and says, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? She reminds him that she's an outsider. But look at what Boaz says there in verse 11. Boaz answered, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. And then he speaks a blessing on her. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. <coughs> then she said, I have found favor in, my, in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. You know what? Boaz is looking at her and saying, I have noticed what you have done. I'm going to deal with you in terms of you, not in terms of someone else. I, I see you. This is about you. I recognize you exist. And friends, to be seen, to be recognized is a powerful intoxicant. When we moved from southern Utah up to here, you know, and down in southern Utah, our kids were younger and we did, did just about everything together. Move up here, they're a little older, and one of our sons started doing things apart from the rest of the family, you know. He came in one evening and said, this is really weird because now I'm being dealt with in terms of who I am, not in terms of what family I have come out of. And that's what Ruth is. She's, she's being seen. She's being recognized as being a human being in her own right. And Boaz says, I recognize you because you served your mother-in-law. You, you've been gracious to your mother-in-law. 
And serving, serving is such a difficult thing. It's rare enough with Christians, much less with pagans. But friends, to serve is a key characteristic of what it means to follow Christ. He said in Hebrews 6.10, God is not unjust. He will not forget your service, your work, and the love that you have shown to him. How? As you have helped his people and continue to help them. When we serve one another, God is the one who takes notice of that. And that's what caught Boaz's attention here. She's an outsider, but she's serving her mother-in-law. And he knows that's something unique. This is not a typical Moabitess here. So we see some of her background. She's from the way wrong side of the track. She probably had piercings in all the wrong places, you know. Probably had a tube, tattoo, but we don't know. It probably hidden under her blue hair. All the reasons to not like her, right? She's the one who got the book named after her. But look at what Boaz said about her. Here, she's an outsider, but something has changed. Look at what he said in verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Here it is. Under whose wings... You have come to take refuge. He recognizes there's something different about you because you are looking to God to take care of you. So let's think for a minute about her transformation. We've seen some of her background. Let's look at her transformation. What is it that took this woman from being one of those people on the other side of the tracks to now 3,000 years later we're still talking about her? So look there back in chapter 1, verse 7. Malin and Chilean have died. Naomi got word that there's food back in Israel. And so she says, verse 7, so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. In that day, there was a custom that if a man died without a son to carry on his name and to carry on his property, it was the responsibility of the brother of the dead man to take the wife, raise up children in the dead man's name so that those children could carry on the name and carry on the property. So if your brother died, you're supposed to take your brother's wife. I'm going to give you just a minute to think about that. Think about that this next Thanksgiving. Make it even weirder. <laughs> Naomi's two sons are dead. And what is supposed to happen with this kind of arrangement is another brother takes them. Well, there are no more sons. Naomi's out of sons. She's out of kids. No more kids. And so she releases the daughter-in-laws. Look there, daughters-in-law. Look in verse 9. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of your husband. Go find you another husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Go get you some husband somewhere else, because there ain't no more coming out of me. I'm done. But they didn't want to go anywhere. And so she argues with them a little bit there in verse 12. Even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? And with that logic, verse 14, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. Orpah turned around and went home. But Ruth clung to her. Naomi tried one more time to get her to go home and finally was convinced Ruth wasn't going anywhere. And so in verse 18, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. What was it that determined, that convinced Naomi Ruth wasn't going anywhere? 
Look there in verse 16. Here it is. This is Ruth's statement. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death separates me from you. It's hard for us to understand the power of these words in that day. Ruth is turning her back on everything that she has known, everything she has experienced, everything that she is. She is looking at her life experience and saying, I'm done with all of that. And Naomi, I am going with you no matter where you go. I'm going to go with you. Friends, this really is her conversion statement. This is her public confession that she is turning her back on everything. And she even invokes the name of the Lord there in verse 17. May the Lord do so to me. She, she, is, she is making a public statement of a change of allegiance. She's denying her home. She's denying her parents. She's denying the land of her birth. She's denying where she's supposed to be buried. She's denying most importantly, her God, and she's choosing the God of a foreign nation. And she's doing this because of her statement of her confession to Naomi, wherever you go, I'm going with you. I'm in a relationship with you. And friends, Ruth saw a change in her life because there was a relationship, a transforming relationship between Naomi and her, where Ruth was able to see what it looks like to be a Christian in a daily context. And the relationships that you have in your life, God has allowed them. He has brought them. He has placed you there so that you can be a witness, an encouragement, someone to walk with folks who just need to see what it means to be a Christian. And sometimes it can take years. They, they've already lived in Moab, it said, for about 10 years. And here it is all these years later when Ruth finally looks at her and says, no, I'm with you. And friends, it's rare that people get saved in a vacuum. It's just a rare thing people get saved in a vacuum. I know a guy that somebody left a book hanging on a doorknob at his house. And years later, his parents, he's a little kid, years later his parents had taken the book and thrown it into a closet. Here he is in his late teens. He finds the book buried in the back of a closet, reads the book, it's a Christian book, and got saved. But that's rare. That doesn't happen very often. I have a, I have a cousin who was born deaf and blind. You know how she got saved? She got saved in a dream. Jesus came to her in a dream and said, you need to get saved. And that's how my cousin Esther got That's rare that people get saved in a vacuum. The primary way, the most common way that people get saved is that they have someone walking with them, showing them what it looks like to be a Christian, sometimes for years, and they finally see the beauty of following Jesus. And Ruth has turned her back on her ancestral gods, has given her heart to the God of Israel because of the power of a life of Naomi. When you look back up your life, you look back, back over the years of your life, who, who is it that's been in, an influence? Who is it that has helped you see transfer? Who has been the physical agent of spiritual change in your life? I remember when I was at university, I, I lived for a time with this old couple. They were really old. She was 47. And <laughs> I just didn't know how they let her out of the house. You know, she's so old. And now 47 is such a small dot in my rearview mirror. It's kind of like, okay, never mind. But they let me live, and they were just so kind and gracious and just loving. And I meant to call her this week and forgot to do it. And um, the last day I was there, um, she gave me some advice that has served me well for so many years. 
She was about to walk out. Lewis had already gone to work, and she was about to walk out to work, and she took her arthritic little hand that was just bunched up already at 47 and slammed it on top of my head and scrubbed back and forth. That's the reason I'm bald. <laughs> and um, Robert, don't ever be afraid to get close to people no matter how short a time you live anywhere. Okay, Eleanor. And then Bill Sanders said, Robert, the Bible says what it means, and it means what it says. Listen to it. Okay. Dr. Barnard, Robert, theology is like a wagon wheel. With what you believe about Jesus, the hub of that wheel. When you get Jesus in the center and you get it right about him, and all those other, other doctrines are like the spokes, they'll just fall into place. And the thing about the people who have been agents of transformation, my wife, who, you know, where would I be without Donna? Don't know if I'd be alive today. It was an amazing day when she came to me and said, I've, I've wondered for years what my ministry is, and I figured it out. It's you. You're my ministry. Okay. Kevin, you know, we've been together for nine years. He's put up with a lot of nonsense from me. And believe it or not, I've put up with some nonsense from him. I know that could be difficult. But here he is nine years later. He still takes my phone call. On and on, the people who have contributed to the transforming work in my life, in your life, they've been physical agents of spiritual change that God has used to make us more into the image of Christ. And friends, when we're talking about real life transformation, that's what we're talking about, making genuine, practical change of who we are into who he is. And that is done on a physical level by the people that God places around us. And the reality is that you have the opportunity to be an impact on the lives of other people. You have the opportunity to be a Naomi to some Ruth somewhere. And we look at it and go, well, not me. I mean, I'm just so much of nothing. I just have so little, little to contribute. You just don't know my limitations. Well, you don't know my limitations. All of us have limitations. The glory of the gospel is not the great people of society that God chose to use to get the message out. The glory of the gospel is... The great things he does through those weird and limited people that he chooses to use, including you and me. Here is Naomi. Look at her limitation. She's a widow. She's a refugee. She's out of her homeland. Lost everybody. Lost everything. She kind of looks on the dark side, and she's, she's probably a little bit dramatic. You know, Look there in chapter 1, verse 19. She gets back up to Israel. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity against me? Oh, we suffer. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. And all of this from the hand of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. She's probably a little bit dramatic here. And friends, if you want disadvantaged, think about Ruth. She's disadvantaged. She's a Moabite who was raised in Moab, a descendant of Moab, raised by a bunch of Moab, Moabites, raised to worship the God of Moab. And when you're moving to Israel, that is a major, major disadvantage. And yet... I wonder if God's going to be able to use her. Are there any contributions that she can make? Is there anything that the Naomi's of this life can contribute? Just by walking with someone and Ruth being able to look past the, the drama and the, the 
dark side of things that Naomi might very well have tended to look at and to see Christ enter. Is there anything that Ruth can contribute to this thing? Let's find out as we've looked a little bit at her background, a little bit at her transformation. Let's look at her contribution just for a minute. As we've seen, Ruth was noticed by this guy Boaz. He eventually took her as his wife because of a practice in that time called the Kinsman Redeemer. There's a great little book by Roy Hessians entitled The Nearest Kinsman, The Nearest Kinsman, that talks about this practice and how Christ has been this to, is, is this to us. Boaz took Ruth as his wife. They had a son. And even in having the son, finally now you think Ruth's going to come into her own. Now it's going to be about Ruth, but it's not. Look in chapter 4. Look in chapter 4, verse 16. It says, Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to who? Naomi. They named him Obed. It's how, how is it that Naomi gets this kid? Ruth is the one who just had this kid. She's still laying over there in the, the birthing chair going, excuse me, I'm, I'm in the room, you know, I can hear you. And Naomi is taking this kid when it says laid him on her lap. That's ancient verbiage for she adopted him. She adopted this kid. And that's, that's how the village, the town looked at it. A son has been born to Naomi. She took him and she's the one who raised him. So Ruth didn't even get her own kid. You know, it's interesting that Roman soldiers, they would be gone in military expeditions sometimes for years. And when they would come back from their expeditions, there might very well be more children in the house than there were when they left. Okay? So we'd look at that and say, well, she's out. Roman soldiers looked at that and said, I'm blessed. I have more kids. As soon as they adopted them. They didn't care where them kids came from. They just... They, they saw him as a blessing. So they laid them on their lap. And when Naomi lays Obed on, his, on her lap, she's adopting this child. And now Naomi, the bitter one, the calamitous one, the abandoned one, is now presented with a son to replace the one she's lost. And she names him Obed, which means worshiper. The bitter one, the offended one, the abandoned one has now become the blessed one. And really, when you look at this, this kid being born... It's really about all we see from Ruth. She had a son. And that's the only one we know of that she had. And that's about it. We don't see her doing anything else in the Bible. And you know, the reality is Ruth and many others in the Bible, they, they don't serve for a really long time. There are a lot of them that just serve for a very short amount of time. They just do what God's called them to do. They walk on stage, they do it. They walk off stage, we'll never hear from them again. You know, we have, we have Nehemiah, who went down there and built a wall around Jerusalem and well, he served the Lord his whole life. No, there's pretty good indication that when he got the wall built, he went back to being a slave in the king's court. You think, well, Moses served the Lord for 40 years. Well, he didn't serve the Lord for 80 years. You got to live a long time for the 40 to amount to enough to be able to say, yeah, okay, that's good. He didn't serve him for 40 years. And while you have the occasional John, you know, over in the New Testament who served Jesus his whole life, you have those that do serve the whole life. There are so many who just serve for a very short amount of time. They just do what God called them to do. And then they went back home. Amos is an example of that. He went up north, told him what God told him to tell him, and then went back to sheep herding. And when you look at Ruth, it's as if Jesus is looking at her saying, I'm going to give you this kid. I'm giving you a baby. What are you going to do with that kid? I'm going to, I'm going to raise that baby to love Jesus. 
I'm going to give that baby everything that I have. Tell him about Jesus because that baby might grow up, get married, and have a son of his own and name him Jesse. And Jesse, my grandson, might grow up, get married, and have a baby of his own and name that baby what? David. And here is the outsider, the foreigner, the cursed, the one that's outside the covenant, who is now the great-grandmother of David. And we look at that and say, oh, I can't serve God. I just have too much working against me. I just can't. Friends, for this woman being a Moabite, that was a major discriminating factor, and God used her powerfully in the nation, the life of Israel. It is an encouragement to every one of us that no matter what you view as your limitation, if you'll bring that to Jesus, he will make something out of it that will turn that into a resource, a strength, an opportunity to be a witness to other people. And you can look at it and say, well, I, I just don't, I'm not the right age. You know, I'm a little too old. I'm a little too young. I'm not the right race. I'm not the right sex. I'm not strong enough. I'm not rich enough. I'm not eloquent enough. Not talented enough. I just have too many talents. I could never debase myself. Friends, all of those limits that we want to put on ourselves, if you'll just bring that to Jesus, there's no telling what he'll do with that. There's no telling how he will use that for his glory in the kingdom. One last thing. I said that Ruth was named 12 times in this book. Did you know she's named one more place? One more place. You know where it is? Matthew chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. And Salmon had a son named Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And for ten more verses it goes, this guy had that guy, and that guy had this guy, and down to this little baby that was born of a virgin, laid in a manger, sung by angels, visited by shepherds, heralded as the creator, as the king of the universe, and we celebrate Jesus because 1,000 years earlier, there was an outsider who just said, I'll give my life. I'll just give my life to Jesus. How many of you in this room are first-generation Christians? First-generation, your parents were not Christians. Do you know what you've done? Do you know the door you've opened for your heritage? Do you know the opportunities you have made for your descendants to to see a change in the family pattern, a change in the curses that have been handed down for possibly generations, the, the opportunity you have presented for your children to be raised differently than you were raised. And what Ruth has done is she has changed everything of her past because of a relationship with Jesus introduced to her by a relationship with her mother-in-law. And today we have the opportunity for salvation because 3,000 years ago an outsider said yes to Jesus. 1900, my great-grandparents lived in Hill City, Kansas. He had been the uh, superintendent of the public school system down to Dodge City, but there were too much, too much gunplay going on, so they moved up to Hill City, and don't you wish it mattered. But anyway, so they were married, and they had two little kids, two little boys, and in 1900... My great-grandmother and the two little boys got typhoid fever. Great-grandpa was not a Christian. 
But they said he got on his knees next to the bed of my great-grandmother and said, Jesus, if you'll heal my wife and my sons, I'll give you my life. Jesus did, and my great-grandpa did. He got saved and served the Lord the rest of his life. A few years later, my grandmother was born. She was raised in the church, went sent to a Christian camp when she was 12 years old, and grandma got saved when she was 12 years old. She was raised, got grown, married my grandpa, met in seminary, he pastored a church, pastored churches his whole life. They got married, had kids, one of whom was my mother. My mother got saved when the missionary from China came through. She got saved. My mom and dad had me and when I was five years old, six years old, something, I don't know. I was in church one day and Jesus introduced himself to me. And friends, here 50-something years later, I'm standing preaching the gospel because 117 years ago, my great-grandmother got typhoid fever, and my great-grandpa said yes to Jesus. You have no clue. You have no clue what your obedience to Jesus today is going to do, not only in the lives of your children, but your descendants for hundreds, possibly, of generations. And what do we do with this? We live for Jesus now. We act like a Christian now. Men, act like a Christian at home. Love Jesus and act like it at home. Love your wives and act like it. Let your kids know that you love your wives. Pray for your kids. Pray with them. Read the Bible to them. Let them know what it means for a man to be committed to Jesus. Show your children the beauty, the benefits, the blessing of what it means to be a Christian, to be in a relationship with him. Kids, our oldest two were four and five years old, and we moved to this house. We didn't have anything. We had nothing. We had five kids. Well, we had four at that time. But anyway, we didn't have anything. And so we get into this house. I bought a business, and... And we throw these two boys in that bedroom, and they didn't have a bed. And we said, we've got to get you a bed. What kind of bed do you want? said, we want a bunk bed. Oh, we didn't have a bunk bed. I said, all right, let's ask Jesus for a bunk bed. And they got on their knees in their bedroom, and they prayed and asked Jesus for a bunk bed. And would you like to guess what showed up at the door the next day? Some folks at the church that we became associated with and have been associated with for now 30 years had stopped by that day we moved in and said, these people need a bed, and they went and bought a bunk bed for my boys. They didn't know. We didn't tell them. But my boys were able to see, you ask Jesus for something, he'll hear you. Friends, just live what it means to be a Christian. Women, love your husbands. Love your children. You, and some of you say, I don't have any children. This doesn't apply to me. That's nonsense. You have children. Whether you're married, had your own kids or not, it doesn't matter. The Bible tells us in Psalm 68, he sets the lonely in families. You have a family. You have people that look to you. You have someone who needs the, the encouragement, the blessing, the challenge, the, the example of what it means to be a Christian in your life. Every one of us have somebody. And we can say, oh, well, that's just one of my limitations. Or we can come to it and say, Jesus, here I am. Just use me however you want to. Friends, we can look at the disadvantages that we have and say, well, that might work for somebody else, but it won't work for me. You just don't understand. My family, it, it, they've been crazy people for generations. I can get victory over this. You just don't. There's been anger in my family for generations. They've been drunks. They've been adulterers. I, I, I'm an adulterer today because my great-grandpa was an adulterer. Just on and on, the nonsense that we could say to limit ourselves and say, I can't get victory in this, or we could come as a Christian today and say, Jesus, I'm giving you my life. Here's all the bad stuff. Here's all the, here, here are all the curses that have been handed down to me. I want to ask you, would you please bring real life 
change, transformation of who I am into who you are in my life because I want my kids, I want my grandkids, I want, I want people that I won't even know generations from now to have an opportunity that I didn't have because of the work you do in me. Can you imagine how wonderful is it to be able to look back up the line and say, you know, they were, they were lost, they were lost, they were lost, they were lost, and then something changed, something changed. There was a change. There's crazy, 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 and then something changed. What was it? Oh, they got saved. Oh, they got serious about following Jesus. And the anger that had been handed down to them, you know, I can, I can, look, I can look at generations. The anger for generations in my family, the drunkenness, the adulterers, the nonsense, just, and just some of them just, you can ask Jonathan how he describes them, crazy people. And I can use that as an excuse and say, well, I was just born this way. There's nothing I can do about it. Or I can recognize, no, in giving my life to Jesus, I gave him everything, including my past, including the curses, including all the bad stuff that's been handed to me. Well, it's always been like this. It's always going to be this way. You know, in Deuteronomy, it says the curse is going to follow him to the third or fourth generation. But in Exodus, it says, but the blessing will extend to the thousandth generation. Which do you want to go with? You want to go with the curse that'll go three or four, the blessing that'll go for a thousand generations. And friends, it starts because someone chooses to say, in this generation, in this generation, was it Lord of the Rings? It will stop here. It'll go no further because somebody stood up and said, I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to act like it on a daily basis. For those of you who have never accepted Christ as your Savior, for those of you who don't know the beauty of what it means to be a Christian, can I tell you, can I tell you, Jesus is on this side of the Jordan saying, come on over. <laughs> come on in. I want to have a relationship with you. And everything that has separated you from a relationship with the Father, that wall of sin, Jesus said, I'll take care of it. There's a penalty that needs to be paid for that wall. I'll pay the penalty. And that's the reason he went to the cross, was to pay the penalty for your sins and mine. So that if we would come to him and just say, wow, I did it. I blew it. I am really sorry about that. I broke. I broke your law. And I am really sorry about that. Would you please forgive me? I will give you my life. Please take control. There will be a change. That forgiveness will be yours. But friends, for those of us who are Christians, how many of us are just living the same life that was handed to us because, oh, there's nothing I can do about it. There is something that can be done about it, and that something is the gospel. Friends, if real life transformation is not a legitimate, real possibility, we are a miserable people. And there are people who look to you. There are children in many of your homes, grandchildren who look to you. Here are my grandchildren now hearing the gospel because their great, great, great grandpa got on his knees one day. To be able to look down line just a little bit and see something of what God's doing. Parents, God gave you those children to raise them to serve him. Raise them, tell them what it means to serve Jesus. Teach them to pray. Teach them to read the Bible. Apologize to them when you do something wrong. Honor, respect them enough to apologize to them. Teach them how to deal with their finances. Teach them that it is right, it is godly, it is a blessing to be faithful in the tithe and the offering. Make it so it's hard for them not to obey God's word. And tell them that God has raised them up to serve his generation, not to be served by everyone around them. Catherine Booth, the wife of the 
founder of the Salvation Army, which was one of the most powerful evangelistic forces in the 19th century of England. Catherine Booth looked at her children and said, You are not here in the world for yourself. You have been sent here for others. The world is waiting for you. Wow. So look at our children and say, God has a plan. God has something for you to do. Would you be willing to do that? As a Christian, would you be willing to be the one who says, you know, all the nonsense that stops in this generation. I'll tell you what, if you are not willing to pay the price to bring freedom to your children, what you are really saying, you're looking at your children and saying, I don't care enough about you to do the work for you. I'm going to make you do it because really, I'm just too lazy. Friends, if you're a Christian, would you be willing to look at Jesus and say, look, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of the nonsense. I'm tired of the fear. I'm tired of the crazy. Please do whatever's necessary in my generation so that my kids don't have to live through what I have lived through. You can be the change. You can be the generation that sees change in your family. If you'll just come to Jesus and say, everything I have, please don't stop working on me until Christ is formed in me. It's not going to happen by accident. It's not going to happen just by magic. It's going to happen because a group of people said we're going to walk together. We're going to walk with the Ruths and Naomi's of this life. We're going to do whatever's necessary to bring change so that my children do not have to go through what I have gone through. I want to give them differently than what I received. Are you willing to say, God, hear this thing, this thing that I've held on to, this anger, this fear, this gossip, this bitterness, this offense, this contempt? Are you willing to take whatever it is that you've held on to, the secret sin, that addiction, Say, I'm tired of this. I don't want my children to have to have to wrestle with this same thing. I'm going to bring this to Jesus in my generation so that I can hand my children a cleaner slate than what I was handed. Would you be willing to take just today just that one thing and say, Jesus, today, please help me in this. Let's pray. Father, we, we call Jesus Lord, and he is. How many ways do we choose to hang on to our own nonsense because of the excuse of, well, it's just always been this way? Well, the transformation is a slow, long, arduous, probably it's a lifetime process. But Father, we want to be easily moldable clay to the transforming hand of the potter. Father, for those who have never accepted Jesus here today, would you please speak to each one in terms we can understand? Just show us our need just for Jesus. To be willing to say, I'm really sorry I broke your law. Would you please forgive me of my sins? I give you my life. And Father, for those of us who have accepted you as our Savior, we've kind of been holding on to that one thing speaking to some hearts today touching, putting a finger on that one thing God please give us receptive willing hearts to say okay I call you Lord and that's what you are but for me to hold on to this is not to live that out so here we go Father change us today generations from now will be blessed and benefited 
because of the work you do in our lives. God, be glorified.